Welcome to Nightlight. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Nightlight. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. We really appreciate your spending your time with us. I want to thank, first off, Ken Quiethawk for that amazing introduction. You can find him and his wife on their website at nativestorytellers.com. Please take the time to check it out. It's an amazing website, and it will give you information on how history used to be passed on before there were books. Actually, a more pleasant way of doing it that kept families together and tribes together and history more informative than it is today. Tonight, Mark has some great people here for tonight's show. Hope you have pencil and paper so you can get more greatly informed than you already are. I know I have mine ready, and I know Mark is very excited to get going with this show, too. So without further ado, Mark, it's all yours. No, thanks. No, no pressure there. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You had a, a busy day, and uh, went at, out there shoveling uh, five inches of snow. No, 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 no. Ga- I called the man who plows. I don't shovel oh, anymore. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Then, then you had uh, uh, a guest appearance with. Uh, Tim and Chip on their show right just right before us, and a you know, little break uh, to actually eat dinner, then uh, produce this show. So you had had a busy day. I have, I have. Yeah. Okay. And it's, yeah, this is uh, a show I've been looking forward to for a while. You know, the Mothman Festival continues to bring people together. Uh, Brent Rains uh, wanted to introduce me to Tanya and Joey Medea. And we ended up having a great time uh, at the festival and, you know, uh, while I was there, you know, but uh, one of their books, uh, Watch Out for the Hallway. Um, it's actually, a, a, you know, really interesting uh, a book. And, you know, it's going to be, you know, one of the features of uh, tonight's show. And 
It's part autobiography, part two-year chronicle of the paranormal events at Moorhead City, North Carolina's Webb Memorial Library, and part manual on how to conduct a paranormal investigation. Aside from being a paranormal investigator, Tanya is a psychic medium and Reiki master. Joey is an award-winning screenwriter and founder of the website newmystics.com, and obviously he's uh, an author uh, too, and he has all kinds of other projects going on. So we're going to hear a whole bunch of their activities over the next two hours. So welcome, Tanya and Joey. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, well... (laughs) Yeah, we. I think after reading, watch out for the hallway. Um, it, it got me thinking of, you know, about you know, a lot of this uh, ghosts and hauntings, and you know, I think as we go through the evening, you know, uh, you know, hopefully. You can, Answer my questions and um, maybe the uh, guests are going to have, or the uh, listeners will have, um, yeah, their questions answered to to our veterans of paranormal investigations for a long time, and I I thought this was a, a very informative book and. Maybe we should start with the layers of history on which the Webb Memorial Library is built. That that's what really intrigued me and you know, got me thinking about you know, these uh, hauntings. So. It, Joey, could could you start us off with the property it's built on in the you know, ge- general area? Absolutely. So Tanya and I had moved to that area about four years ago because we fell in love with it. It's it's mm-hmm. really an enchanted area. It's it's referred to as the Crystal Coast. So we're talking about the southern outer banks. And where the Webb Memorial Library is is part of a very very rich maritime and nautical history. So mm-hmm. Blackbeard scuttled his ship, the Queen Anne's Revenge, not far from there in 1717, and um, other other lore and interesting stories. Well, there was a lot of lore and stories tied to this place called the Webb Library. So for about a year, Tanya and I heard people talking about it. Oh, there's these ghost tours over at the web library and have you been to the web library it's very haunted and and one night i went into work i was um creative director for um an educational and entertainment touring company who specialized in historical education and there on the wall which had been there but i just happened to see it that night was about these these haunted web tours and so i said to the owner well Tanya and I have a little bit of experience in paranormal investigation. We're really interested in this. He said, well, as a matter of fact, I haven't been able to find really good investigators. So long story short, we wound up taking it over. So the first thing that we did was look 
at the history because Tanya and I have learned in the course of our investigations and through the mentorships of people like Rosemary Ellen Guiley that mm-hmm. history, geography uh, are so important to piecing together why a place is so haunted. So that piece of property was owned by a couple of prominent families in Moorhead City at the time. Now, Moorhead City, why does the city become very prominent? In Moorhead City's case, it's because it has a deep water port, which is very important, and it's very rare in North Carolina. So in South Carolina, you have Charleston. In uh, Virginia, you have Hampton Roads up there. You have these, you have these big ports. And so when, when Moorhead City when they hooked up the railroad to the port, it kind of exploded. And so it drew money and it drew opportunity. And one of the families that was there was the Webb family. Um, There was also a Dr. Thompson who owned some land there at the time. And then there was a man called Benjamin Royal who was a doctor and he purchased some property across the street and put up a big hospital. So with a big water port like that, um, a nice state-of-the-art modern good-sized hospital is very, very important. So Mr. Webb goes off to school. He becomes very successful. He goes to school at New York University. Then he gets his law degree at the University of Michigan, and he winds up being general counsel for no less than General Motors. He's a very, very smart guy. He takes over another company. Um, which is a partnership with DuPont to get engine knockout by creating this fancy additive. He's got a lot of money. Here it is, 1929, and he wants to do something. It's, you know, the, the stock market's falling apart. People are suffering, and he has this piece of property that used to belong to his family way back when, and he purchases it from Dr. Thompson, and he puts up this building. Now, The building at first on the ground floor were the two doctors that I've mentioned, Dr. Thompson, who had owned the property, so he was attached to it, and Dr. Benjamin Royal, who oversaw the hospital across the street. Upstairs, they put in a textile training facility, um, teach people how to make clothes. Everybody needs clothes, even during a depression, and not far from where the building is was a uh, factory, garment factory. So they're training people, they're bringing them over to the factory. Everything's great, except there's a problem. The machinery is very loud and clunky, and it doesn't really go with doctor's offices downstairs, as you can imagine. So they put a lending library upstairs. Mrs. Webb belongs to the Women's Club of Moorhead City, which still exists, and they have 2,000 volumes that they need a home for. Many of those volumes are still in the library. So that's step one of the library. Well, it's about four or five years after this uh, lending library and doctor's offices are going, and there's a tragedy. And the son, Earl Webb Jr., who looked like a character out of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, 19 years old, is home from Duke University, contracts a lung disease, and he dies. They name it the Webb Memorial Library and Convention Center. The doctor's offices come out, and it becomes the working library. Up until 2013, it was funded by the Webb Family Trust. And now it's going through some transitions to uh, possibly become part of the county system or to find different funding sources. So that's the history of the space. Okay. And over time, you know, we're we're, going to get some really intriguing uh, 
discussions of all, all the information you presented. That, that was a good floor, uh, floor plan for you know, the topics. And so, uh, Tanya, one of the um, seems like like a, a focal point to see into the library was at the courtyard, and it's seems like your place you place a lot of emphasis on you know the little fountain and being able to see into the different windows and you captured uh, images inside or behind the windows. What is going on there around the uh, fountain in the courtyard? Great question. Well, the courtyard um, is this lovely area. It does have the fountain that you mentioned. It has these wonderful lamp posts. Um, it's beautifully um, garnished with trees and foliage and uh, flowers. There's a, a picnic table. So, and there, I did notice um, on several occasions activity in the courtyard itself. Uh, I would see, um, actually, one of the first spirits I encountered at the web was a young girl playing in the courtyard, uh, and mm. another uh, female spirit that I would often see in the courtyard sitting at the picnic table. But one thing that would frequently happen is that when Joey and I would take the guest, and so we would have groups of anywhere from say like five to as many as 15 uh, individuals at one time, but then we kind of made a limit of 10 people after a while. It just got too hard to manage that many people. But but we'd have the the group gather in the courtyard where Joey would go over basically the history that he just shared with you, and we would stand at the fountain, and from that vantage point in the courtyard you could look up and see the second story windows and one thing that started happening early on is that my focus would often be pulled to um, that particular window that you were mentioning and I would see an individual up there and of course no one was in the library at the time but I would see a male figure standing in that window looking down on us. Um, The guests would often notice that I would be fixing my gaze up there and they would snap photos and that's how one of our guests managed to capture the photo that you were talking about. Um, but that mm-hmm. was a pretty frequent occasion. You could you could almost feel the eyes fixed on you from that second story window. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it just, it, it, is that typical of paranormal investigations where there's uh, like the vantage point that allows people to see in into the house or you know castle what you know uh, whatever it is I was just trying to uh, your, your book is 
you know, very detailed and, and just trying to establish, uh, you know, some patterns because, you know, we're going to be talking with uh, Joey later about, you know, uh, you know, the patterns he and Switchy are working on. Was it, is that pretty typical? There was nothing typical about the web. We were, hmm. we were so lucky. Really, um, the subtitle of the book is our two-year investigation of the most haunted library in North Carolina. And that was Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our publisher and our mentor, who suggested that subtitle. And we said, wow, that's quite a claim. And she said, look what you got there over those past two years. It's a substantiated claim. We got communications on the ghost box. Um, we, we got readings and, and saw spectral MIBs and, and an interdim- hairy interdimensional being. And there were UFO sighting correlations that we found out after the fact when we would see some of these supernatural things, it, it's a, it was a perfect storm there at the web. So, so I think it's very important for people to know we go into places all the time, Tanya and I, and some places we go into time and time again, there's a place in green County that we've been invited into several times. They're all haunted places, but nowhere near the level of consistent activity and the sheer amount of ghosts and spirits that we encountered at the web. Okay, and in another interesting aspect was the um, portrait of Earl Webb was by the door, and mm-hmm. and the, the did, did that have any influence on? Your investigation, uh, you know, T- Tanya. Do you want to take that one? Sure. Like the it, um, the uh, the image, because you know we're gonna get into you know photos later. And I was just trying to make a dis. Uh, is there something? That's uh, what you know. It, I, I really liked about your book is you know portraits and photos are still drawing ghosts to a specific area. Mm-hmm. As far as Earl Webb Jr., in fact, there are portraits in the web of um, Earl Webb Jr. and also both of his parents, so Earl Webb Sr. and his mother. And really, of all the spirits that we encountered at the web, we never did encounter any member of the web family, which we we found very hmm. interesting. Yeah. Now, you are talking about, we'll probably get into that later, but there's a photograph that did draw a spirit that is a very yeah. interesting story. Yeah, 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 just, yeah I, I just thought that was interesting about, you, you would think Earl would be there, there would be something about him, and it's, you know, Kind of like the family property, you, you you just expect there'd be some kind of connection, and you say he's not. And you know, we get uh, you know, we get to uh, fo- a photo later on. You just kind of wonder why. How's this guy from another country 
uh, yeah, have such a strong presence. Uh, it's mm-hmm. uh, I, I, it, that that was one of the you know real you know, fascinating aspects of the the book, and you also didn't realize um, until you brought uh, brought up the uh, you know point is you, know, you go from. Uh, room to room and in the hallways um that the um uh installation of a, a elevator ha- had an Im- impact on the the paranormal investigations uh you know, tanya what what was going on with that Well, it's often the case when there is any kind of construction or remodeling done to a building that already has activity that it it tends to stir the activity up. And the installment of an elevator um, is a huge undertaking. So um, there was a a fair amount of activity that would occur in the elevator itself. Some pretty fascinating things. When you would go in the elevator, um, you could see with your naked eye uh, these light orbs just dancing, and if you held your camera up, um, uh, lots of lots of times we were able to capture these light orbs just sort of dancing around in the library. Um, and there was just a it's like a strange sensation that people would experience when they were in there. And Joey would frequently take, uh, you know, of course you can't fit that many people in there, but he would take people in a couple at a time and allow them the opportunity to get photographs, to get video in there. Um, until uh, on one one evening he accidentally bumped the uh, police call button in the elevator. So that led to a, a funny encounter with the Moorhead City Police Department. Um, then after that we decided it was really just, um, it would take up a lot of time because we could only take people in there a few, uh, you know, a couple at a time. So we stopped doing that. But the elevator itself uh, was very active. Okay, it, 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 that's just interesting. It, it's installed later uh, after you know, some uh, some of the heyday of the the web, but it, it's. Uh, yeah. What do you say? I mean, how do you phrase it? Like it, it you get the spirit still um, in. Inha- I don't know if inhabiting is the right word. Um, but you kind of wonder how something that happened is installed later becomes um, a place that is haunted. So, so it was installed 90 years after the building was built in 2009 Mm -hmm. for Americans with disabilities, uh, uh, you you know, um, to be be in line with that. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. um, Thompson was born 110 years prior to the installation. Yeah. Um, but the web is very much so so there's there's two kinds of things going on at the web. You sort of have your resident spirits who mm-hmm. are Dr. Thompson, certainly uh, some of the children 
that are there. Uh, Helmut Rathke upstairs, who's been there since the 1940s. Well, um, I forget when he actually died, but he's been up there for a long time. Um, and we can talk about him later. But right. then but then you have um, – we used to call upstairs what we would call the portal hallway. We would also refer to it as Grand Central Station. So the web library is very much a transient um, station for spirits and ghosts. They come and go. So there were some spirits and ghosts that we only encountered, say, on one night or three or four nights or a couple of weeks, and then we never were in touch with them again. But certainly we believe that the installation of the elevator ratcheted things up because towards the end of our two-year investigation, they started to do a lot of renovations in the space. The characters of the spirits and the ghosts changed very much. Dr. Thompson was very down and upset because they were modernizing the place. Um, mm -hmm. The electricity, there was a lot more electricity. Instead of nice, rich wood furniture, they were putting in metal and plastic furniture. So you have all different kind of um, energy, vibration, and conductivity changes. So we can only imagine in 2009 what that elevator going in did to it must have shaken the place up like a like a uh, like a Yahtzee can full of dice. And, okay, and that that okay, that's making sense. And it t Tanya, um, you know, when we look at these. Uh, you know, your book, you, know, you do examine these residual hauntings, and Joey just mentioned the transients. Uh, you had the disembodied voices. Like, how many different types of hauntings are there? And, and like, a follow-up question is: What's the difference between a ghost and a spirit? Sure. Well, when you look at hauntings, you have what what's called a residual haunting, and that's essentially just an imprint. It's an energetic imprint on the space itself. So there's no intelligence behind it. Uh, there's no way to interact with or communicate with um, what you're experiencing. It's, it's just like a memorex, like a playback of an event, uh, usually a very emotionally charged event, but it can also be an event that just took place repetitively over long periods of time. So that's a residual haunting. And then you have what's called an intelligent haunting, and that's where there is a consciousness behind what you're experiencing. I think one of the best examples of the one of the intelligent hauntings that we experienced at the web was with Dr. Thompson, who, as Joey mentioned, was one of the two doctors who um, practiced in the building when it originally opened. Mm -hmm. And um, he, I feel like Dr. Thompson was connected to the building because it was his family's property. Uh, <laughs> there was a home on the property when he was a child. Um, whether or not he lived there, we weren't able to find documentation, um, but we do know that his family owned the home that was on that property. And so he had a, fam a family connection there. In, and he was just a very, um, from from what I experienced with him after he was in spirit, he, he was just a very loving, generous, kind, um, gentle man. And I think that he stayed on because he was 
just very fond of his experiences there. He was very fond of the family property and fond of the building itself. And he seemed to be a guardian for a lot of the spirits who resided in the web, particularly some of the children uh, ghosts that we encountered there. So those are the two different kinds of hauntings, um, residual and intelligent. And um, I'm sorry, your follow-up question was the difference between ghosts and spirits. And um, so ghosts are um, individuals who have passed on and for whatever reason they've decided not to cross over or to remain on the earth plane. And like, for example, in the case of Dr. Thompson, maybe it's because they're just um, very attached to a location. They might be attached to um, a person or events. Oftentimes um, they don't want to cross over because they feel that their life was cut too short too soon. Um, There's a lot of reasons why they don't cross over. But a spirit is someone who has passed on, but they have moved on. And they've gone over to, you know, what we think of as the other side, which um, in my experience as a medium is a dimension that's very much like the three-dimensional reality that we experience here, um, except that everything there is much more vivid. And uh, obviously it's very fluid because it's not a physical reality. It's, it's you know, it's... Um, an energetic one. So those are the differences between ghost and spirit. Okay. And what, and you also mentioned, you know, there were some transient ghosts and that that's more of like a one time encounter. Some of them were one time encounters. Uh, there was on one occasion, a young man that we encountered. Uh, my first um, experience with him was that I was just seeing this young man. He seemed to be confused, uh, didn't know who he was, didn't know where he was, which, by the way, can be another reason that, that ghosts don't cross over. Is they don't even know that they're dead and they're just confused. And so I was experiencing this young man. He didn't know, like I said, who he was or where he was. Uh, after working with him, myself and a couple of other mediums were able to work with him. And this was over the course of a couple of weeks. We discovered his name. He started to remember that he had been in a motorcycle accident, that he had suffered a head trauma. Once he realized that he had died, we were able to work with him and help him cross over. So that was something that took place over um, a couple of weeks. But there were times where we would encounter someone and we'd see them maybe once or twice, and then we'd never see them again. Okay. Maybe Joey has a ghost in the uh, uh, desk. Ghost in the desk? Yeah. Looks like it, it sounded like you were fumbling for something. Oh no, not at all. Sorry. <laughs> our house is plenty. Our house is plenty haunted. <laughs> okay. It, 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 and spe- speaking that, um, you know, you, as you've uh, moved around the uh, country. <clears throat> um, 
and you know, you've done these tours. Has you know, Joey, has anything uh, you know followed you home, or yes. it just keeps you know pursuing you from when you were in Arizona to Moorhead City? Not not from place to place like that. It seems like every place we've lived is haunted. But I think um, Tanya and I have come to realize, and we had a lot of conversations with Rosemary Ellen Guiley about this, every place is haunted. Um, but the more you do this kind of work, and with Tanya's gifts as a psychic medium, and our daughter is a very gifted psychic medium as well, um, you notice these things. Like they say in the movie, The Mothman Prophecies, you notice and they notice that you notice. Um, so, so nothing has followed us from house to house. We have had some ongoing problems with things, but they, they came from other sources. And, but I think most importantly to your question, if, if you're not careful, if you don't ward yourself, if you don't have a nice balance between being open as a receptor to the investigation, open to what's happening with all of your senses, you know, the five everyone knows about, and then your more higher level, more attuned senses, um, things will go home with you. And there, there were times that that happened. It, it happened to me in a very weird way. We, we had a very active night at the web one night, and I was sleeping. And suddenly I found myself in the dark and I heard this, this beeping and I didn't know where I was. And I knew kind of, I wasn't in my body anymore and everything sort of came into focus. And I realized that it was the crosswalk uh, sign right outside of the web. And the minute I noticed that I kind of snapped right into my body. So that's not quite something following us home, which happened. There was a spirit who followed us home and wreaked havoc in our kitchen for a week, um, doing all kinds of nasty little annoying things. But, but um, if you're not careful, you, you can remain attached and things will come with you. So a big part of, of our teaching now that we're doing more and more workshops and lectures is how to prevent that from happening. And it's, it's being careful and putting the white light around yourself and, and being responsible. So things, things will follow you if they think that they can. Okay. And, and watch out for the hallway. And you do uh, cover, um, you know, yeah, the, like those possible e events you know, it, you know it's also a, a manual of ha how to uh someone to conduct th themselves you know you, you do establish rules and uh when when you know your guests go on, on the tours with you and you, you know you take take a, a variety of uh, equipment in into the homes or you know library uh, you know, wherever you're doing the uh, investigation for the night. So, so um, you know, Tanya, what what are some of those uh, you know, the the rules that you recommend to? Uh, your guests you know, make them have a 
informative experience? Sure. So um, one of the first rules that we have is, and this, you know, applies to any place um, that someone might be investigating, is, of course, you want to treat the place itself with respect, whether that's an abandoned location or like the web library uh, functioning um, library or business or Mm -hmm. place of residence. So you always want to, you know, make sure that you have permission to be there, of course. Um, and and treat the place with respect. So that's, of course, number one. Um, The second one is you really need to uh, approach it from uh, a place of respect, not just the place, but the investigation itself. So a lot of people now are familiar with a lot of the paranormal shows, and in some of those shows, one of the tactics that um, they use is to try to provoke um, the, the ghost of, yeah, so we really advise against that. In fact, at the web library, uh, it was a very strict rule that we had. If if you're going to provoke, if you're going to be disrespectful, we'll shut the investigation down immediately. Um, these are sentient beings that you're dealing with, and they are entitled to the same level of respect as any any person, any sentient being is entitled to. So you don't provoke. Um, and, you know, you just you want to keep the group together. You don't want people wandering off on their own. And, of course, in the web library, be, again, because it was a functioning library, there were certain rooms that were offices. And, you know, they were kind of off limits because that was somebody's personal office space. So, you know, if the doors closed, don't go in there, that type of thing. So those were basically the rules. And okay, my, just, my, it's not so much a rule, but, but really something that I would encourage the guests to do is that, you know, people get really caught up in the gadgetry and the, you know, the EMF meters are really cool. And there's all kinds of mm-hmm. very uh, helpful gadgets that you can bring along on an investigation. But to me, the most important tool that you can use is your own body. So if you feel like you're sensing something, you know, put your gadget down, take a moment, and really try to tune in to what it is because, you know, we all have the ability to um, perceive and connect with spirits. So it's just a matter of learning how to do that and trusting it when that experience is happening for you. Okay. You know, and, you know, Tony, throughout your book, you, know, you yeah, you know, pe- people are there, and you know, uh, with their gadgets, and uh, people pick up on, you know, just say, say the cold spots, and you know, when we've done our few uh, paranormal type, uh, you know, uh, shows, and you know, the you know. Pretty frequently, you know, we come across where uh, you know one of the gadgets might pick up on a cold spot. Okay, that's using today's technology to confirm that. But you know, some when we've done interviews with other people, have looked at. the the literature from the Victorian era, um, <clears throat> and that's the authors are 
pretty much using their bodies, like you said, you know, just be in tune with um, what your own senses are telling you. But, you know, it's, you know, one of the interesting things about your book is you are discussing that modern technology is confirming what's <clears throat> oh, yeah, so, say so, something like Hawthorne you know, wrote about in the House of Seven Gables about the uh, cold spots or Bram Stoker you know, it's uh, it, it there, there's you know like this uh, pattern of phenomenon that occurs that ha- has been documented. I, I, I just en- enjoyed learning that. Definitely, there there are you know certain things that that seem to occur connected to these types of hauntings or this type of activity. Cold spots are certainly certainly mm-hmm. one. Um, you know, c- certain types of noises, of course, electrical malfunctioning or, you know, lights flickering, the, all of those things. The batteries draining. Batteries draining. Um, we had a lot of a lot of things like that. Certainly cold spots. Uh, on one occasion, we were all downstairs on the first floor. We had actually just entered the building. Joey and I were going through the introduction. We were kind of going over the rules when we all heard uh, piano music coming from the second floor. There was a piano on the mm-hmm. second floor, um, but, of course, nobody was up there. We would hear that. We would hear um, what would sound like uh, something heavy being dropped and then dragged across the hallway of the second floor. Of course, footsteps, those are a very common occurrence in, the, in this type of activity. So all of those things in the web, doors opening and closing, um, things moving. Okay. Cool. I, it, uh, um, Joey, you know, we want to look at um, you know, some of the rooms. You know, there's the um, children's room mm-hmm. um and the oh uh was it oliver yeah that we oh, we nicknamed what, him oliver because he, yeah. he wore the knickers and the news cap yeah 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 that and and, and yeah, i thought that i i enjoyed how, how how you broke down the book into different rooms and um yeah, what you know, one of the things that got me thinking and uh, about like the, the the children's room is you know you would think that okay like you, know, you get the wages of sin or death you know uh, but but why do you have you know yeah, you know, the uh, 
you know, toddlers and other children, you know, being trapped in this uh, library, um, you, you know, you know, little little kids aren't aren't that uh, sinful. Uh, uh, you know, you'd think that you know they'd uh, you know, just be given some uh, slack and uh, taken to heaven, but you know, you have these, you know, you get get us thinking about why kids are are, are stuck in this library. Well, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That. That's one of the things I've you know, really enjoyed uh, about your book is you know looking at these different um, scenarios and just got me thinking. I, I, do, do, do you have any uh, answers for? Absolutely, <clears throat> absolutely. I'm so glad that you brought up the children's room because uh, Tanya and I don't. Um, profess to know it all far from we're very very humble but we did learn a great deal being in the web library for two years we were in there for 75 nights so we spent i say 150 hours but it was probably closer to 170 180 all told but 150 official hours we spent investigating that library so so a lot of our guests had the same concerns that you did. What what did these poor children do that they're in this library, as you said, stuck? But if we think about it from, from a different perspective, it's an operating working library where hundreds of kids come through that room reading, playing with the toys, the puzzles, the building blocks, um, having fun. Uh, nobody thinks, you know, little kids don't think the library is a drag. Library is like heaven to them in a way mm -hmm. ironically yeah. so um there were there were ghosts of of little children or spirits of little children that would play tag with us so if we piled a bunch of things in front of an empty bookshelf the emf meter would go off right the electromagnetic frequency meter it would go all the way up to the red which indicates a very strong presence of a ghost if you move the things away from there it wouldn't do that because there was nothing to hide behind, therefore no hide and seek. So it's really Tanya and I's feeling that the kids were there because they wanted to be there. And uh, Dr. Thompson very much was a custodian of them, of Oliver and some of the other children that we encountered. And the last thing that I want to say about that is we got reports from parents and from library staff that children would go to the library and they'd say to their parents, can I bring my imaginary friend home, you know, Jimmy or Tommy? And of course the parents would, you know, typically say, well, leave them here at the library and, and, and just, you know, we'll come home and we'll come back and visit them. But we correlated some of the names that we got the stories from for um, some of the children. So kids would come to the library living children and they would see these spirits as well. And, and I think that they were interacting with them. So that gives us a new perspective about who stays around on this plane and and why. What what better place to be at than than an active library full of children? Mm-hmm.
Yeah, uh, when I'm at our, our uh, county library, uh, uh, it's ma- you know, mainly in the summer, but you know the kids en- enjoy being there. Yeah, you know, the pe- you know, you know, you know they have people reading to them, and you know, there's little play areas, and, and there's just a, a lot for them to do, keep uh, busy and active, and. You, you, you just you, you just see, see it on their faces. So, uh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. making sense. And you know, Tony, you know, yesterday when you know, you know we were talking, you know, uh, you know just to stick with Joey's uh, explanation of children. You know, when we were had uh, Tim Swartz on covering the Jeff the Talking Mongoose. Um, and he brought up the point about um, you know Vori uh, was kind of at, at that age when children uh, can still see ghosts, but you know, maybe a few months might pass, and you know they just. Uh, go through a stage where they uh, uh, lose that um, ability, and that was brought up in the the, the Jeff book. It, I, um, how, how does like what uh, Joe was talking about? You know, with the um, you know, living kids going to the library, uh, you know, for this summer reading session, and they talk about, uh, you know, wanting to bring uh, one of their imaginary friends home. Uh, is that, you know, pretty you – know, children seeing ghosts, is that a, a pretty uh, common occurrence? Definitely. I think we all come into this world um, with the ability to perceive um, these energies. Really what happens as we get older is um, we're just told that we can't, and so it becomes conditioned out of us. So when a child has an experience and they say, oh, can Jimmy come home with me? And it's like, what are you talking about, Jimmy? There's nobody there. And so they begin to doubt what their experience is. And the older we get, the more we just start to believe, oh, it's just my, it really is my imagination. It really is just, you know, an imaginary friend. Um, or for some people, um, like myself, when I was young, I would perceive things and it frightened me. So mm-hmm. I would just, I just learned to shut it out because I didn't know how to, um, you know, I didn't know how to deal with it. It scared me, so I deliberately shut it out and didn't want to do, you know, deal with it until I was much older. But for the most part, I think what happens is that we just become conditioned to believe that, yeah, oh, that's just my imagination. Okay. Well, and just, I, you know, you know, we've had a uh, on this show. You know, we've had a couple examples, uh, but you know, I just did. I, I didn't know how 
extensive that pattern was, but that that's fine. I just, I, you know, the, the par you know, the paranormal is not my forte, but you know, you, you, know, you really got me uh, th- thinking with your book, and it's, uh, I found it to be very interesting. So, you know, I, I'm learning a lot too, and you know, one of the more uh, interesting uh, cases that uh, of a haunting within a particular room of, of the library was the, the uh, meeting room. Um, and you know, Joe, you know, we, we spoke a little bit about that as well. Uh, that, that case was unique. Um, I didn't have an idea of someone really not even associated with the building is haunting, and there's you know just kind of working in the uh, uh, you know maybe the difference between a portrait and a a photograph, Mm -hmm. and maybe this. Photograph of the U-boat and the Cuban Missile Crisis, and all uh, you know, some of this other, uh, yeah, what sixty, seventy-year-old uh, uh, photographs in the memorial room uh, attracted th- these. Uh, Entities. Uh, can can you explain that? That, that was just uh, something that really fascinated me. Yeah, absolutely. So, I really like the story of Helmut Rathke, right. who's this German U-boat captain. Because, excuse me, <clears throat> sorry about that. Um, because it brings together all the different parts of paranormal investigation. So you have historical. You have synchronicity, which does have its place in investigation in the right doses. Um, you have the use of the equipment. You have the psychic mediums. You have all these different things coming together over a large part of time. So what happened was in the meeting room, several months prior to solving the mystery, we started to get German language communications on the spirit box. Now, this in itself wasn't unusual. We would get French we would get different accents, male and female, young, old. It was wonderful. Uh, the web's a wonderful conduit for the spirit box. And we happened to use the PSB-11, uh, which Rosemary recommended to us. So it was a funny sort of coincidence, so to speak, that every time someone came through in German on the box, there was someone in the group who could speak at least a little bit of German. So there's this ongoing thing going on till um, – one night someone sees a vague outline of someone and, and Tanya smells cigarette smoke. And we're like, there's, there's this, there's this spirit, this entity here who's in front of these cabinets, who's setting off the EMF meter. Um, but we're not making correlations yet. Well, one night Tanya's out of town lecturing and Jolie, our daughter, who's 20 now. So she was around 18 at the time. She would be our guest psychic medium. 
So one night she, she, she goes in the meeting room with us and she says, Dad, there's a guy in a Nazi uniform standing by the back cabinets and he's smoking and he's doing the Heil Hitler sign and the whole bit. That's that's really interesting and odd. Same thing as you felt, Mark. Like, why would this Nazi uh, officer be in this library in North Carolina? Well, here's where the synchronicity comes in. At the same time, I mentioned that I was creative director at this entertainment and educational um, touring company, and we were creating. I was designing an escape room, and and I had been in the local maritime museum, and I had seen. That during World War II, so the early years of World War II, uh, before they got it under control, the Allies, German U-boats off the coast of North Carolina sank 350 ships. You just don't hear about that in history, and it absolutely fascinated me. So it was horrific because I told you it's a deep water port there, so these big oil tankers would come in. So you would have these horrible burn victims that were triaged in the web, and we did experience some hauntings with some burn victims. They were There was a hospital ward across the street. Dr. Benjamin Royal treated lots of burn victims. So you start to get this picture coming together, but all the pieces don't quite fit until one night we're in the meeting room. We're deep into trying to put this mystery together, and I look on the shelf, and here is this photograph of a sunken U-boat. German U-boat U-352. So I go home. It's late at night, but I'm thinking about it, thinking about it. Next morning, I start to do some research. It turns out that U-boat 352 was sunk about, oh, less than an hour from the Webb Memorial Library by the U.S. Coast Guard. Many of the people on the ship were killed, and there was this captain. Captain Helmut Rathke. So I find some pictures of Helmut Rathke. I find a uh, declassified naval intelligence document from when he and some of his other guys were prisoners of war in North Carolina. And Jolie comes down and I say, take a look at this picture. Now, the interesting thing is he isn't in uniform. He's just in a tan shirt and tan pants and a tie, but he's not in a Nazi uniform. I say, do you recognize this guy? She goes, that's the guy with the Nazi uniform in the meeting room of the library. And I said, well, hear who it is. It's, it's Helmut Rathke. So then all the pieces start to quickly fall into place. We had a psychic medium with us one night and the German is coming through the box and she says, who, who in this room had a leg injury, got their leg stuck somewhere, maybe in a boat. So I'm thinking about this. Oh, wow. Okay. Helmut Rathke was hated by his men. He was draconian. Uh, The Naval Intelligence Report said that Helmut Rathke, the only person that was more Nazi than him, was Adolf Hitler. So it's making sense. This is what we see all these years later, still giving us the high Hitler and all that kind of stuff. Um, He's a a curmudgeon. And he was such a draconian, such a disciplinarian when they were prisoners of war that his men hated them. Flash forward from the World War II to the 1970s. The men who survived decide to have a reunion in North Carolina. Now, not at the Webb Library, but about an hour or a little less than an hour away. And they send him the invitation. But written on the invitation, it says, Capitan Rathke, 
we are all getting together. Here's the invitation to let you know that you are not invited. You are not welcome. Basically, you were a failure. So here he is. It's not funny, but um, but here he is in this room with this picture, with this poster, not far from where it happened in this place that's a huge portal, you know, a very powerful power station to bring in ghosts and spirits, and he's there at the site of his humiliation. It's it's an amazing story. Yeah, and it what what you said about um, not all the pieces were fitting together until you, you get the photo. Uh, realize you know there there he is in the photo uh yeah that that that's one of the legacies of you know uh reading your book is you know get you know putting things like that um out there for you know the people and yeah there's all that information and you know it takes a while but you know since you're you have the time and patience and you keep uh looking to connect all the dots at at at, at some point you, you do and, and, and you know, I think you, you did a really nice job of uh What's the word? Uh, almost like creating a, a profile. Of, mm-hmm. Thank uh, you, uh, uh, Rathke. I, I, I'm not sure if that's the right uh, term or not, but uh, that you know, you get the gist of what I'm saying. Which... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was very much a profile. So when I found that Navy document, where mm-hmm. you know this is from, this is from 70 years ago. Right. And, and and it's an official document that's corroborating everything that our psychic mediums that that we're feeling the data that we're gathering. Man, as an investigator, you, you know, a paranormal investigator, yeah, there's you know, play with the toys and the equipment and go out and oh, if it's haunting, it's a demon and it's got to be banished. But we're investigators. And and it's our job to piece all of this together and and to say, no, these kids aren't trapped. They want to be here. And and just because a person was mean in life, they might be mean as a ghost, doesn't make them a demon. So so I we thought it was really important. And it's really when Rosemary decided to publish the book was when she saw really what we were doing. And we were sending her reports because she was our mentor and saying, mm-hmm. oh, here's what happened, and here's how we handled this, and, and this is sort of our methodology. And she said, this is, there's really something here. Uh, we need to do a book on this. So it was, it was even more our, our methodology working together, Tanya and I, and bringing our skill sets together, even more than it was the fascination of what was happening at the web. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've, I think you did, both of you did an excellent job of, and, uh, you know, uh, what's, uh, take, 
taking this one you know, building and you know, just dissecting all the different pieces and deconstructing it, reassembling, and, and like making all the connections. It, it, I, it, it is a really good book on how how to do a paranormal investigation. And Thank you. So, so Thank you. while you, you know you just mentioned Rosemary and her, you know her influence on you, you know let's uh, uh, take some time and. Um, you, know, you wanted to do oh, uh, a, a memorial for, for her, so you know she she was a uh, oh, eulogized by quite a few people at at the Mothman Festival, but you, know, you were actually working with her uh, very closely. Uh, you know, more than you know, many other uh, people. So, you know, you know Tanya, it, what was it like working with uh, someone of Rosemary's uh, stature in the paranormal community? Uh, working with Rosemary was was just amazing. Uh, just to have someone with such experience extensive knowledge, first of all. Um, you know, as Joey mentioned, we certainly don't profess to know it all. And uh, just because of the sheer amount of experience and years in the field that Rosemary had, it was always a comfort to know that we could, you know, just call her up, ask for her input, ask for her advice, ask for her perspective on things. Um, so that was just invaluable to us. She was a consummate professional. So really early on, our work with Rosemary um, was just a, a profound lesson in just how to conduct yourself in the field as a professional, just by observing her and, and watching the way that she worked was, again, invaluable to us. Um, just such a, such a brilliant woman, a lovely lovely person, very kind, very compassionate. She would always take time for people, um, you know, to, to try and help them in any way that she could. So we just consider ourselves immensely blessed to have known her and to have had the opportunity to uh, not only be mentored by her, but, but to be considered friends by her. Mm-hmm. Joey, what would you like to add as, as well? Um, I think you know when when you work with someone like Rosemary, who who was an absolute giant in the field, right? She wrote over sixty books. She was on mm-hmm. coast to coast AM countless times, television, um, an absolute authority. You think about legacy and you think about doing right by someone like that who's who's helping you get opportunities, who's publishing your books, who's 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 getting you on radio shows and things like that, speaking at conferences. 
And I think that that was wonderful for Tanya and I. Not that not that we do anything slipshod or unprofessionally, but uh-huh. just knowing that Rosemary was watching and that she's still watching and she's probably watching and listening pretty closely right now to this show, um, that that really kept us working super, super hard. And now that she's gone and we can't, you know, call her on the phone, um, mm-hmm. we have to think, you know, what would Rosemary do? How would Rosemary handle this? And when we make a mistake or we, we flub something, uh, we think about, wow, you know, <laughs> Rosemary would have really kind of scolded us about that. Uh, so so it, it was an honor. I miss her every day. I've been lucky to have in the different areas of my life as a writer, as a performer, and as a paranormal researcher and writer, I've had really good mentors, and they, they've all passed away. Um, so um, I, I think about them every day and, and try to honor them, and Rosemary, of course, is, is right at the top of that list. And, and she she was uh, uh, almost an annual speaker at the Mothman Festival and uh, you know, she, she uh, wrote the introduction to uh, Brent's bio, uh, biography of um, uh, uh, John Keel yep. and uh, it, 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 she Is uh, uh, passed you know the torch to the next generation, and it's, it seems like you know, she she has guided people in to uh, be th- thorough investigators, and, and I. I Got and that comes across very clear in you know, the discussion we've had about you know watch out for the hallway you know, uh, you know the section on uh, you know, the, the, all the information that finally came together from all the you know odd little pieces of information that you know, just didn't seem to fit f- from the meeting room. But right. they, but you, you you stuck with it and every you know both of you brought all the information together to make sense out of uh, you know the situation with uh, uh, Rathke. So, but but you know when you're uh, you, you know, we're working with her. Uh, what was she like in in person when you're kicking around these ideas? And you know, uh, Tanya, uh, how, how did uh, th- those uh, meetings go? You know, just you know, were you just sitting there in the kitchen or something, just ask we... questions and listen. Well, when we first met Rosemary, that would often be the case. But when we were investigating the Webb Library, she was living in Connecticut. We were in North Carolina. Of course, her travel schedule was so busy. She was on the road 
uh, and in the field so much that she actually never had the opportunity to come down to North Carolina, but was always available by phone. And we did contact her frequently just to, you know, of course, keep her apprised of the investigation and how it was going, some of the new experiences we were having, and um, as I mentioned, just kind of bounce things off of her. And she was always just, um, you know, just very helpful, very knowledgeable. She could often help us put things into context and, you know, give us Mm -hmm. examples of experiences, you know, similar experiences that she had. Um, So it was just wonderful. Okay. Yeah. It seems like uh, context has kind of become an operative word for tonight. But, um, you know, so where, where's the paranormal field going? in her absence she uh, you know she left huge shoes to fill uh, where do we go where does late night talk radio go without her influence well i'll i'll talk about that a little um okay because that comes back to the legacy. So, yeah. so I know you mentioned the book that I'm working on with Steve Ward, or as you call him, and some other people call him Switchy. Um, and and we're working on parallels and patterns. And and Rosemary said to us when she asked us to do the book together, she said, make sure you talk about consciousness. So of course, the field of consciousness studies and consciousness, you know, top scientists from physics and from neuroscience and from the biosciences are saying consciousness can exist past death. It can, there's no reason why it can't. And they're designing experiments and, and, and gathering data that says that it does. So that opens a whole new realm. I also think that science is catching up with the idea of portals and parallel dimensions. We know Mm -hmm. that NASA is involved with this. We know Stanford is, we know quantum computing is about partially going into parallel universes. The designer of the D-Wave quantum computing system, uh, Jordy Rose, was talking about it seven years ago. We can go into parallel universes. So I think part of the legacy moving forward now is to go, we know these things exist. We know consciousness survives. Um, I was reading some late, the latest polls, way more than 50% of the population believe in life after death or ghosts or paranormal phenomenon or ESP. It's growing all the time. So what we need to do is be responsible about it, not jump to conclusions, not think that everything that's dark and scary is a demon. Uh, Those are the kind of things we need to do. Apply history, geography, neuroscience, all the different tools that we talk about in the book and to use the equipment responsibly. If you over-rely on the equipment, you're going to have a problem. If you got all these digital gadgets on your phone that aren't tied to nuts and bolts, transistors, and things like that, we have no idea where that data is coming from. So it's really about carrying the field forward, 
you know, there's Steve and there's Brent Rains and there's so many people who are really trying to emulate Rosemary that I think I think we're going to be okay and she's going to be proud of us. Good. Uh, Tony, do you agree with uh, Joey or you want to take his um, accolades in another direction? I agree with Joey um, 100%. And I really feel like, um, as he mentioned, people like Steve Ward, of course, um, the book that he and Joey are doing together, Brent Rains, um, Rosemary mentored a lot of people. A lot of people were, were hugely influenced by her. And just emulating her, following her example. Um, I do agree with Joey, too, that the consciousness um, studies and what we're learning more and more about consciousness and, um, you know, quantum physics, all of that is, is just playing a huge role and will ultimately help us understand more about, um, you know, what we're calling paranormal is really part of the normal world. It's just that our understanding of it hasn't fully evolved yet. Okay. And I think, you know, what you said about, um, you know, our, our understanding hasn't fully evolved. You know, um, I'd probably fall into that category. You know, I'm I, I, I'm learning a lot um, as I listen uh, to you, and yeah, you know, and yeah, you, know, you just um, expect. It, 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 like when you know, if you just think of you know, just say of uh, Warwick Castle in England, you, know, you got all the, uh, you know, just say eight hundred, nine hundred years of uh, history there. Yeah, you, know, you expect you know something bad happened that, that would leave a a ghost, and um, yeah, you know, we've learned tonight that you know, um, you can get like some person totally unrelated to the castle from a different time period, and just kind of show up. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm 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 learning uh, th- th- this material as well, and you know, just I uh, Rosemary taught you very. Very well. Uh, I'm learning some insights from you two uh, tonight, and I'm having a good time. And you know, a few of my uh, friends have also commented on it as well. So uh, she, she, uh, Rosemary taught you was a, a great, great mentor. Thank you. That means a lot. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. And, and what about you know kind of related to uh what 
we were just discussing is uh, was John Keel a big influence on you as you got into you know wanting to do paranormal investigations um, he, he made a, a a lot of connections that uh, showed that there was some kind of pattern that could be traced. Uh, do you agree with uh, John Keel's work, or do you have a different take on it? Um, you know, Joe, Joe, you want to take that? Yeah. Um, so John Keel has, quite honestly, John Keel has been a huge journey for me. Um, when we first got into this, we uh, Tanya and I experienced an interdimensional, interdimensional being um, near the Ohio River in the TNT area, which is famous for the Mothman sightings of the late 1960s. Right. Now, what Tanya and I saw was not the Mothman, but it was an interdimensional being. That's how we met Steve and Rosemary and, and John and Tim Frick and really started on this path. So I knew John Keel from his book, The Mothman Prophecies. And quite honestly, I wasn't impressed. And and I thought this was a journalist who saw an opportunity to make money in a in a field that not a lot of people were in and things didn't add up for me. Now, that said, over the past 10 years, I have really come to admire John Keel a lot. Part of that was Steve Ward. Um, Steve had me read Operation Trojan Horse. Um, I've read mm-hmm. some of his other books. I, I just read and reviewed Brent's book, which is an outstanding book. It shows John, uh, John Keel was a warts and was a very complicated guy. He could be a curmudgeon. He, 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 uh, he could get creative at times. But he really was able to put the pieces together, and he is one of the giants that we're standing on the shoulders of. If you're doing this work and you're doing it responsibly, I'm very much in line with the ultra-terrestrial theory that these are, these are not nuts and bolts things. Um, are they parallel universe? I'm not sure. And my big thing with John Keel is the recognition that these things are tricksters. They will play with us. They will play with the equipment. They will send us down rabbit holes. They will give us false flags. Um, and that makes it super challenging. So that's my journey to John Keel. Highly, highly respect him. Put him right up there with Rosemary, Jacques Vallée, and a few other people who you cannot, you cannot work in this field without knowing their work. So that's, that's my position on John Keel. How about you, Tonya? Um, unlike Joey, I I was a fan of John Keel from the beginning. After reading The Mothman Prophecies, which was um, my first introduction to John Keel, um, I, first of all, was just fascinated by the book. I loved his approach. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I just, yeah, I just was a huge fan from the beginning. I agree with Joey, too, about the ultra-dimensionals uh, and also right. his approach to, um, you know, interviewing experiencers and recognizing that um, 
usually individuals who, you know, maybe they've experienced a haunting, but the chances are that they've experienced a broad spectrum. So people who have maybe had a UFO experience are probably also experiencing some kind of paranormal activity in their home. Um, you know, there's just so much to the phenomenon that you can't put it in any one category or loophole and say, oh, well, this is UFO um, only, but this is like haunting only. You have to kind of look at it all in the broad way that John Keel looked at everything. I, I think he was definitely uh, groundbreaking in the way that he approached his investigating and research. Okay, and since, since we're uh, you know, uh, just talking about John Keel, um, you know, or early on in your Watch Out for the Hallway, you, know, you do have a um, unusual uh, cryptid type encounter on the infamous Route 62. Uh, and, and that's you know part of the autobiographical nature of your your book. Um, it, Tanya, do you want to t- tell us? Uh, you know, both of you can uh, t- talk about uh, that sighting. And you know, Tanya, do you want to start off with that? Sure. Um, so Joey and I are actually our first introduction to John Keel was uh, when we saw the movie The Mothman Prophecies. And mm-hmm. we became immediately fascinated and subsequently read the book. But shortly after seeing the movie, we moved to West Virginia. And I was very interested in locating and possibly visiting the town of Point Pleasant um, because of the movie and, and the book. And Joey, not so much. Initially, uh, he was hesitant. He was like, why Why would I want to go visit a Mothman museum? No thanks. But after uh, a little while and some coaxing, I talked him into making the trip, and we took a weekend trip, which was um, about three hours away from where we lived at the time in West Virginia. So we went for the weekend. This was August of 2009. Of course, we did visit the museum. We were first struck by uh, the town itself. It's like taking a step back in time. It's like walking back to 1966, really. Such a small town charm. Yeah, Um, everything kind of looks the same. Uh, So we were immediately enamored of the town itself. And so, of course, we went to the Mothman Museum. We uh, checked everything out there. They gave us a map. And then next we went to a a shop that's no longer there. It was called The Point, and it was owned by a gentleman by the name of Bob. And Joey can help me because I'm terrible um, sometimes with names. I can't think of his last name. Bob Landry. Thank you. Um, Mm -hmm. Bob was wonderful, and he we always feel like he was kind of a mix between uh, Elvis and Johnny Cash. He kind of... He just kind of had a swagger like Elvis uh, and and hair and a voice like Johnny Cash. And he saw the map that we had of the TNT area, 
And he said, no, 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 this won't do. And he hand drew us uh, another map and directed us to the igloos where um, he said there was a lot of orb activity. And he shared with us photographs that a lot of his customers had brought into the shop uh, that they had captured at this one particular igloo. And he said, if you get anything out there, be sure to, um, you know, come back and tell me about it. Or, you know, if you get any photos, be sure to come and share them. And we promised that we would. So the TNT area is only about 10, probably less than 15 minutes outside of downtown Point Pleasant. And you do take Route 62 out that way. And we know that we left Bob's shop about 2.30 in the afternoon that day. And we took the 15-minute drive out to the TNT area. It was a sunny, beautiful August afternoon. Uh, the skies were clear. And we get out to the TNT area, and all of a sudden, as beautiful as it is out there, and it is, it's a wildlife preserve now, um, it, it's just breathtakingly beautiful, but we felt really strange, and we felt as if we were being watched. We felt very uneasy. We made our way to the igloos, and uh, we were just kind of feeling skittish about going inside. Um, and the whole time we were there, which was only about 15 minutes, we felt very uneasy and didn't spend a lot of time there at all. So we had brought uh, some a bundle of sage that we wanted to leave just sort of as an offering to the location because Bob had told us that he had heard that it had once been an Indian burial ground. So we wanted to pay mm -hmm. our respects. And mm -hmm. so we left that, and we got in the car and headed back up Route 62 back toward downtown Point Pleasant. And we were just kind of talking about how weird it was that it was such a beautiful bright day and such a beautiful scenic area, and yet we felt so uneasy. And just as we were talking about that, we saw this figure, um, this dark sort of grayish silhouette, just emerge on one side of the road, on the left side of the road, and in a single bound, it leapt across two lanes, landed on the other side of the road, on the edge of this cornfield, and just vanished in front of our eyes. And it happened so quickly that we would have really thought that we were seeing things, you know, that it was our mind playing tricks on us or something, but we both turned to each other, and at the same moment, we said, did you just see that? And so what we decided is that we'd go back, we'd share it with Bob, and uh, we weren't going to talk too much about what we saw. We wanted to each draw uh, a sketch of what we had seen and compare notes. Mm -hmm. So we got back to the shop, and it was locked up. And we were really confused because we were like, well, Bob said come back and tell him, and, you know, it should at this point it should be like 3, 3.15 in the afternoon. And we're not understanding why the shop is locked. Um, but it turns out we looked at our phones and it was after five. So we have no accounting for that missing time. Um, fortunate for us, Bob happened to see us rattling around on the front door. He came up and, and said, you know, what's up? And we shared with him our experience. And from there, he put us in contact with John and Tim Frick. And um, mm -hmm. that's how we came to meet Rosemary. It's how we came to meet Switchy. And uh, it's just kind of, <laughs> you know, it's all been wonderful. You know, it was a wonderful experience for us because it brought so many amazing people into our lives. And then Joey and yeah. I did subsequently 
each do a sketch, and the interesting thing about those sketches is they're identical. And we knew that we had yeah. seen the same thing, so that wasn't the question. It's just that usually when you have eyewitness accounts, you're going to have a slightly different perception from each individual of what, what they saw, a different perspective. But we drew pretty much exactly the same thing, which was very unusual. Yeah, and you have the uh, both drawings side by side in the like first somewhere in the first couple chapters of uh, the book. So and they do uh, in the prologue. Yeah, it's pretty much the same same thing driving down the highway and like the same type of cryptid or I I, I don't know uh, what it was. Uh, it's it looks identical in both drawings. Have you gone through like hypnosis to uh, get a, a better image of what you saw? Or, or anything like that? No, no you're, the, you you're the first one to actually suggest. Actually, not a bad idea. Yeah. Oh, gee, oh, I can't believe I actually someone actually like one of my paranormal ideas. That's that's about a first. Got an exclusive on my own show. There you go. <laughs> because it could it could be very interesting. Because not only did we have the missing time, but I saw a gas station. <clears throat> I really do apologize. Sorry. My throat's closing up on me here. Um, I saw a gas station very clearly that isn't there. And we saw cornfields on both sides of the road. And that's not possible because when we went back with Rosemary and Steve and some other investigators, when word started to get around about our sighting, um, there's a house there. And the house has been there for like 20 years. So... There are a lot of really weird things. We were on the road a lot longer than than we actually were. So there was a lot of time-space distortion. So it might just be time, Mark, for uh, for some hypno-regression therapy to, uh, to find out what the heck went on. And then we'll come back on your show and give you an exclusive. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, we are going to do that. Thanks. Uh, That's yeah. interesting. So some some of my uh, friends, like uh, the human billboard and Brenda, are, are already saying how much they enjoy uh, uh, listening to uh, both of your research. So well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah. It, yeah, uh, we're gonna have to do this again. And you know, since we have been talking about Switchy, uh, what's he's? You know, you two are working with a title. Uh, it's like patterns and parallels. Is that it? Yeah, it's parallels and patterns. Oh, okay. A new a new paradigm 
for the investigation of paranormal phenomena, and we were brought together by Rosemary. Um, mm-hmm. Steve is an absolute walking encyclopedia oh, he of paranormal history. I mean, just the names, the places, the details. So that's Steve's piece of it, the case studies, right? Mm-hmm. So how, how have they overlapped through time, and what are the commonalities? And I bring Tanya and I's field research and um, some of our experiences and experiences that we've gathered through interviews and case studies that we're doing, some of which are ongoing, and we're, we're identifying these parallels and patterns. And we're hoping, Steve and I, humbly, even though it sounds like a giant mountain to climb, that it may help to, if, if not change the dialogue that we're all having, we're, um, it's astonishing to us that anecdotal evidence is so easily dismissed. But anecdotal evidence is at the core of human experience from the earliest times. I mean, Barbara was talking about um, the storyteller that does the introduction to this show and, mm-hmm. and the oral tradition. I mean, our stories are what we have. They're who we are. That's a huge part of my work. So Steve and I are really breaking down anecdotal evidence in the positive ways and in the negative ways, like why if you're if you're in the military or you're a police officer or you're an airline pilot, is your testimony somehow more believable than someone on their back porch enjoying a cup of coffee in the morning and they see a UFO? When you think about it, that kind of breaks down. So we have to really look at the anecdotal evidence um, and see what parallels and patterns emerge. Uh, John Keel used to say, ask them what they have for breakfast. Uh, Switchy taught me that, um, and I've adopted it. Find out what other things have happened to them. So if they've had a haunting, chances are good that they've seen a UFO or vice versa, or they've, they've had other kinds of experiences, which might be buried until you say, you know, think back and, you know, were there other odd things that happened? And they go, as a matter of fact, when I was a kid, blah, blah, blah. So that's what we're trying to accomplish with the book. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it, what it, you know, having uh, Brent as a guest, um, you know, what you and Steve are working on with uh, you know, the patterns, and you know, Brent brought that up. At, you know, I'm uh probably later uh, like april or so uh, hopefully we're going to get um another guest on who's going to be looking at pattern I, that you know, so much really seems to be revealed by these patterns yeah and and that that, that was you know i had a feeling that you know maybe we'd probably be getting into that tonight. Uh, you know, you, you know, in your book, you you know do throw some curveballs at, at us. Uh, you know, like you know, back to the um, Helmut Rathke uh, case. Um, but you know, once you look at the entirety of all the information you present then starts to make sense. And, you know, you know, you spoke about like the children's room and, um, you know, so I'm looking forward to 
that book, and you know we'll, we'll have to reconvene once that becomes available. Uh, how's you know the time frame uh, going for that book? Right. So we so when Rosemary got sick and then ultimately passed, um, we had some delays, obviously. And and Steve and I are uh, taking full advantage of that time. So we'll be writing all through the winter, uh, mm-hmm. probably editing and all that kind of good stuff in the spring. So we expect that the book will come out in the summer and uh, certainly in time for next year's Mothman Festival, which will be Ooh. very exciting. Yeah, that will be very exciting. So I think that that's our goal because choosing the right case studies and the and, and also word count is a thing too. I mean, you only have X amount of pages to do this in. So what stays, what goes. So, right. but that's the timeline we're working on right now. I expect that the book will come out next summer through visionary living publishing. Okay, cool. Okay. Hey, uh, Barbara, get the calendar ready. Get put, put, uh, Tanya, Joey and switchy in in June. You know, um, we only have one day, day day in uh, June already booked. Nice. (laughs) But um, okay, and you're all, Joe. You're also working on. um, You've already just uh, published a. Uh, pirates book, and you, you, you got us started on the um, history of the Web Museum. is really not not too far away from where the uh, Queen's Hand Revenge uh, sank, and I, what uh, maybe in the last what ten years or so, it was um, actually discovered. Exactly right. Yeah, right right off the coast of Beaufort, North Carolina, which is where Tanya and I lived, which is right next to Moorhead City. And uh, it seems weird. <laughs> I've become the pirates and paranormal guy. But, but actually, if you <laughs> just in a nutshell, because I know we're getting short on time, um, you know, maritime traditions have there, – there's so much that's parano- uh, paranormal and, and uh, St. Elmo's fire and different superstitions and – and uh, sea creatures and, and, and visitations and weird things and don't let this kind of person on your ship and don't leave port on Thursday because that's Thor's day and it'll be thunder and lightning and your ship will sink and, and things like that. Um, it, I really got sucked into it. So I do all this living history, stage shows, presentations, now novels having to do with pirates and and circulating around Blackbeard because the propaganda of Blackbeard was that he had sold his soul to the devil. Um, The Spanish called him El Diablo. And uh, the the story was when he was assassinated by the Royal Navy in 1718 in a plot with the governor of Virginia, believe it or not, um, which is what happened there. uh, There was all kinds of propaganda that they cut his head off First of all, it took like five or six stab wounds and like 20 musket shots to bring him down. And finally, a big Scottish Highlander took his claymore and sliced off Blackbeard's head. They kept the head and put it in a box. 
so that they could get their bounty, and they threw his body overboard, and they say that it swam around the ship three times. As a matter of fact, Benjamin Franklin, who everybody knows about Benjamin Franklin, he was a 13-year-old printer's boy at the time. He was called a printer's devil, actually, and he fancied himself a poet. And so he wrote a poem that goes in part, uh, better to swim in the sea below than to hang in the air and feel the crow, said jolly Ned Teach of Bristol. So there's this whole mythology about Blackbeard that he was uh, the devil incarnate and he killed people uh, whether they needed to be killed or not um, because he was immensely, immensely evil. And it's just a wrong story. Um, it's a horribly wrong story, and there's no time to, to really talk about it tonight, but it's about politics and the politics of slavery and empire and kingdoms fighting each other. You know, this is in the early 1700s. It's a precursor to the American and French revolutions um, because captains could actually be voted in and out by crew uh, vote. So if Blackbeard was indiscriminately killing his crew members, why would they vote over and over again to keep him as captain? You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. so the stories start to break down, and that really interests me. So thanks for bringing that up. It's a, it's, it's a huge – it's a really interesting time. It's very fun. I do a Scottish character named Angus McGregor who's the nephew of Rob Roy, the famous outlaw, whose story is also by and large very misunderstood. And mm-hmm. – uh, yeah, so but but I tie it very much. If you get the novel, it's the Canon in the Quill, uh, book one, and it has the paranormal aspect to it. It has to, you know, it has to. So, okay, it, it, you know, we have about uh, 15, fourteen minutes or so left. Um, what aspects of the paranormal were associated with the um, pirates. Well, so because of the uh, transatlantic slave trade, uh, you have the Obeya religion, which is is sometimes confused with voodoo, but it came from Africa and it came from the Gold Coast of Africa and it has its roots in, uh, in Egypt so Anubis or this this dog spirit or dog god is very prevalent. So the book opens up with an experience with one of these uh, entities. And then also, too, another paranormal aspect comes from all the different nautical superstitions and what are the creatures of the deep and what happens when you're sailing into uncharted territory and are you going to fall off the end of the world or are you going to find yourself in another dimension is part of it. And then going back to the empire and the greed and the slavery and all of that, um, we have these, we have these demons, right? We have Moloch and we have Mammon and all these different demons. Well, they were sort of personifications of sort of this greed and um, subjugation of entire classes and races of people. So those are the different paranormal aspects that I pull all into this book that there are these larger forces um, from heaven and hell who are affecting what's going on and affecting history. But, but a lot of it really comes out of my research of the transatlantic slave trade and a lot of the thing, you know, uh, everybody knows when they think of pirates, they think of the pirate of the Caribbean movies. Right. And there's the, uh, she kind of talks with a Jamaican accent, but there's sort of the witch voodoo priestess, and she is a practitioner of Obeya. So, so it's very prevalent to, um, 
you know, it's the same thing with Eastern Europe and and the vampire lore coming over into the civilized England. Okay. Um, yeah, it's the same thing with the with these traditions that were very very foreign and these cultures coming in and uh, kind of clashing with those who see themselves as being very 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 civilized. So that's that's pretty much it. That's what's going on there. Okay. Cool. And um, Tanya, we need to uh, give you and your collaborator, Emily, uh, time to discuss your soap and candles uh, uh, project as well. Yes. So Emily uh, Mittemeyer is a a close friend and fellow researcher, uh, another close friend that we met uh, because of our time in Point Pleasant. And um, recently, about almost a year ago now, Emily and I were uh, with Joey and, and her boyfriend, Devin. We were investigating Point Pleasant. And we happened to be walking down Main Street, and I was just talking to Emily about how I always felt inspired to do something creative because I'm, I'm also a very creative person, that I felt always inspired to do something creative around Mothman, but I could never really figure out what it was. And in that moment, I heard a voice say, it's soap. And I kind of chuckled, and I turned to Emily, and I said, well, I guess it's soap. And she kind of chuckled. But then we really started thinking that it would be quite fun to come up with, like, a cryptid line of soaps. So we started developing that, and um, then Emily came up with the idea that it would be also fun to have a whole cryptid and paranormal line of candles to go along with the soaps. So we created a company called Outer Realms Bathworks, and we've now developed uh, several different uh, cryptid and paranormal-themed soaps and candles. And you can find us on the Internet at OuterRealmsBathworks.com. Cool. Check that out after the show. We have about 10 minutes left. Um, Okay, what – you know, you – both of you have been to uh, the former West Virginia Penitentiary, um, and you've if people haven't seen it on the TV shows or haven't been there uh, for the tours, the Grave Creek Mound is right across the street, um, and. Joey, when you know, uh, you know, we were talking the other day. Um, yeah, you, you said you did pick up some uh, Adina or native voices uh, when you were investigating. Uh, you know, the penitentiary is actually in, in between uh, where several mounds were located uh, this seems like a residual situation can, can you explain a little bit more detail about uh, yeah. what what you encountered there 
Yeah, so so we went out with our team uh, 14 months ago. It was, it was September of 2018. We went out with our team to to spend the day in that area in Moundsville, and we're really struck by you know this building, which was a very violent violent place. There there are a lot of violent criminals there. It's one of most, and it, it kind of towers over in this very gothic manner. This giant um, mound. And all around West Virginia, Ohio, we've been to Serpent Mound, but we've been to the other Adena Mounds, and it's fascinating. We've we've brought our equipment, and we we've taken some very interesting readings about the energy that flows through these things. And so we went up to the top of the mound with with our team, and uh, there's a there's a monument there, sort of like an obelisk kind of monument at the top mm-hmm. top of the mound there, and uh, we set up our equipment there and, and, and Tanya and I did an invocation. We, we know some, um, some prayers of invocation that we've been taught by some mentors, uh, native Americans and, and such over the years. And, and just kind of said, our intentions are good and we're here. And if there's anyone who would like to communicate, please go ahead and communicate. And, uh, and Tanya being a psychic medium, she really, we, we did get some, some interesting, uh, communication, foreign language communication, over the voice box, but but Tanya, if you could talk a little bit about what you saw and and when you went to take the picture with John Frick and what happened there. Right. So so we were seated, we were doing the meditation, and I kept seeing this woman next to John Frick, and I was just seeing her, uh, you know, in this uh, traditional clothing, and um, she just. <laughs> Continued, and I forget what John was experiencing, hon, at that same moment because I was kind of in an altered um, place because of the meditation. Do you remember what John was experiencing when I was telling him that I was seeing the woman? Yeah, he 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 kind of felt her. He felt her presence near his shoulder, and then he asked if if you would take a picture of of he and Tim to sort of memorialize the event, and and that box, the the voice the facial recognition box kept showing up in between the two of them right. corroborating right. his feeling that she was standing right next to him. Yeah. So he was feeling it. I was seeing her and then the, the facial recognition box came up. So that was pretty fascinating. Yeah. And yeah, this goes along with what you mentioned earlier in in the show with um, it hasn't been uncommon for you to just pick up uh, a French or German uh, word here or there, uh, a phrase. Uh, but that yeah, this is you know really interesting where the voice may be from someone uh, 2,000 years ago. Yeah. Uh, it's, you made... Or, if, if, go, go, go ahead. I was just going to say, you, you know, you've j- just made the, uh, this whole experience very intriguing tonight. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I, I, it was more rhythms of language than anything that we recognize in the case of the Adina woman, which would make 
which would make a lot of sense. So, so mm-hmm. it is, it is fascinating, you know, the ghost boxes and, and I'm sure Brent Rains talked about them when he was on your show because Brent uses them too. And um, there's some, some, some nicely sophisticated ones like the PSB 11 that Rosemary um, mm-hmm. suggested to us. That's a very, very good one, but it takes a lot of patience and discernment, but you, you will get young, old, male, female, different races, different uh, uh, languages, different um, accents. It's very fascinating stuff. Okay. And, you know, uh, we're down to about four minutes. Um, Yeah. Do you want to plug any websites? uh, And, you know, Tanya, you can uh, plug your uh, candle and soap website. Uh, too. So, uh, you know, get, give you the last few minutes, then Barbara will come in to uh, wrap up the show. Sounds good. Well, um, I I can be found on Facebook, and my professional Facebook page is just my name, Tanya Medea, R Y T R M T L M T, and of course, OuterRealmsBathWorks.com is the candle and soap website. And Joey can talk about where you can find him. So you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm very active on all of those. Uh, you can go to Mark uh, very generously mentioned that in 2002, I founded a literary and art site called newmystics.com. So you can find me there as well. And I, and I do want to say that all of our books are available on Amazon. Uh, Kindle and hard copy and uh, for watch out for the hallway and Tanya's book um, living the intuitive life which was the first book Rosemary published you can also find those on visionary living's website visionary living publishing okay cool and um, you're more than welcome to come back to uh, plug the uh, parallels and patterns book, and you know, just you know, do do a another Mothman plug at, at you know all around the same same time. We'll have, have a gr- group of us together and talk talk about uh, Mothman Festival in 2020. Awesome! Thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, that this great. is a yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Tanya and Joey, for the great discussion tonight. And, you know, Barbara, do you want to come in and wrap things up? I would be happy to. We want to thank everybody for listening. We certainly enjoy your your listening to us. It's, it's lots of fun not knowing exactly where this is going, but knowing that it's going out there. It'll float on the ether for probably forever so that some spaceship floating by in 50 million years will pick it up and wonder about the species that was down here on this Earth planet. Thank you so much, though, for listening tonight. We look forward to seeing you again on Thursday. Mark has another show then. And next Monday for When God Had a Wife. Thanks again. Blessings, everybody. Good night.